Hi, my name is Jenny. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kevin. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Daniel. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, found in John 10, verse 1 through 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into this place right now. We invite you to fill our hearts in a fresh way. And we're asking that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus today. And that you would open our ears, that we would hear the very word of God convicting us, challenging us, changing us. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts today, Lord, that the very things that you want to drop into our hearts, the seed would land on good soil, Lord. That it would bear much fruit to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I can't believe we've made it this far in the service and nobody's drawn attention to this beautiful set uh, we, we put up this week. <laughs> no, we didn't put it up, but these are the joys of meeting in a high school. At least twice a year we, um, we have a school play to work around. And, um, you know, there was, I'll never forget, I think it was our first Easter here in Palmer High School. The school play was The Man from La Mancha. And uh, if you know anything about what that set might be like, there was a part of the set that was a cave, and it was just perfect for Easter because we turned it into an empty tomb, you know. Um, 
But these are the joys. It's a good thing that, that we believe that it is the people of God and the presence of God that make a school into a sanctuary. Amen? And so that, that's the miracle that happens here every Sunday. We're in a series called Tuned In, and um, it, it, the, the whole overall series has been about listening to God. And so week one, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to believe in a speaking God, in a God who calls to us. And if, if you remember, we talked about how even from the garden, uh, God called out to Adam and Eve that their sin was not enough of a barrier that God said, uh-oh, you sinned, I'm done speaking to you. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. No, even in their sin, God calls out to them. And how the Old Testament is a long and beautiful drama of God calling out to his people, um, speaking, calling Abraham and saying, through your family, I'll bring blessing to the world. And then uh, calling Moses so that, that Israel could be called out of Egypt. And then calling to them through the prophets in their very dramatic and almost exaggerated form of communications. And then we talked about how the high point of the story, of course, is when Jesus, the very word of God, became flesh. Yeah, in, a, in a very real sense, when we want to know what the mind of God is, we don't turn first to the book, we turn to Jesus. Now, the thing is, the book works with the story. And that's why in week two we said, well, you listen to God through the scriptures. Because it is the scriptures, Jesus said, that testify of him, that testify of himself. So actually, we can't force that dichotomy too hard and say, well, I look to Jesus, I don't look to the Bible. Well, that's fine, but it's the Bible that gives us the picture, the testimony, the witness of who Jesus is. So last week, we talked about what it means to listen to God through Scripture and how we kind of locate ourselves in the story and let the Spirit of God breathe the words, uh, uh, the words afresh in our hearts today. Now this morning, we're in, in week three of it, and what we're going to be talking about is what it means to listen to God for guidance. Now, I, I don't know um, what kind of, um, how you approach this, but typically for many of us, when it comes to listening to God or the subject of listening to God, the question we always uh, want um, God's, God's voice to, to weigh in on is when it comes to guidance. We want to know, all, all right, Lord, should I take this job or this job? Should I move to this city or that city? Should I date this person or this person? Should I go on a second date with this person? Uh, the answer is yes, by the way, because there's not enough data on the first date. Okay, uh, <clears throat> that's, that's free. That has nothing to do with the sermon. Okay. <laughs> But that is true, though, actually, is, to, is usually first dates are pretty bad. And, 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 and so you're expecting people to be an eight or a nine on the first date, and you, you're kind of like, well, that's a five or a six. But actually, as you get more comfortable around each other by the second date or the third date, all of a sudden, the, the, the ordinary meal is that much more enjoyable. So give it a chance. Okay, that's... <clears throat> all right. Um, when it comes to everyday life... When it comes to everyday life, we want God to weigh in and give us guidance and all of this stuff. And yet, doesn't it seem, if we're honest, doesn't it seem like he's surprisingly silent? Like precisely the moments when we're saying, God, I really need to hear from you. Should we make this move? Should we take this job? Should we go? Why is it that God sometimes seems to go dark? As it turns out, this is something of a pattern with God. Think about the story of God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. 
Think about how in the desert, there are all these miracles. There's a pillar of fire by night. There's a pillar of cloud by day. There's manna falling from heaven to feed them. There's water springing from the rock. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And then they get into the promised land, and it all stops. Now, all of a sudden, if they want to drink water, they're going to have to dig wells. And if they want to eat food, they're going to have to raise livestock and plant gardens and all of this stuff. All of a sudden, we're realizing, why is it so much work? I thought this was supposed to just kind of keep zipping and zapping and God was going to, you know, just drop stuff out of the sky. Why does it seem to be so much work? Uh, there's a, I don't know if you're any fans in here of, this, of the Narnia books, the Chronicles of Narnia, but, uh, you know, if you start with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which Lewis wrote first, and then you kind of uh, keep going, what you recognize in the Narnia stories, and set aside the horse and his boy, because that's sort of a standalone story, but if you go to Prince Caspian, and then you go to The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and then you go to The Silver Chair, if, as you read those stories, something very strange is happening with Aslan. He becomes more and more silent. You remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they, they see Aslan and they're just, the kids are just taken with him and, and, and they see his sacrifice and it's an amazing thing. By the time you get to Caspian, it's only Lucy, the youngest, who sees him. Do you remember this? They arrive in Narnia and she's convinced that she can see him in the forest. And the older kids are like, no, Lucy, you're imagining things, you're making stuff up. And she, the, the one with the heart of a child, says, no, I see him. And later, she, she kind of gets a little bit disciplined or, or, or corrected a little bit for not trusting that and following that and instead going along with the group in the wrong direction. When you, by the time you get on four books into the silver chair, you discover that Aslan actually isn't speaking directly anymore. He gives Jill and Eustace, now the heroes of the story, he gives them these instructions and Jill is supposed to remember them. She's supposed to hide these words in her heart. She's supposed to cherish them and, 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 and remember them so that when the point comes on the journey, it will come up to her mind. It's amazing because I think what Lewis is trying to say is he's trying to tell in a children's story the experience that is so common to us. That moment when you come to faith and you're like, I just feel God is so real. He's, his presence is all around me. I can't go to church without weeping. Anyone had experiences like that? Right? And you, you, every time the band starts playing and starts singing, you're like, oh, God. I just, yeah. And then a year in, you're like, I don't know. I'm just sort of losing the magic. A couple years in, three years in, five years in, ten years in. You're like, I don't, I, how, how is it that I can't feel this, hear this, know this? What's going on? And so the temptation is to say, well, maybe God is distant. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God is sort of upstairs. And this is what happened right in the Enlightenment period where they said, well, God's upstairs. Even if there is a God, he doesn't have, have anything to do with the affairs of humans. So let's just figure this out on our own. And so the Enlightenment came about because they said, we've got to figure out a way how to run the world because clearly God does not, uh, is not saying anything. So we're tempted to kind of say, well, maybe that's what we should do is just sort of, you know, go on our own and figure this out. And yet the scriptures say, no, we're invited to keep seeking God, to keep discerning his will. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this again. We heard it as our New Testament reading. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and brothers and sisters, is a, is a fair um, way to render this, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's take a couple of these words. The word discern there is to test, to prove out, to almost demonstrate by trial, to prove out through trial. We're supposed to discern, we're supposed to prove out the will of God. And here, very likely what Paul is saying, the thing that God wants, prove out that what God wants is actually better than what you want. Prove it out. And then maybe we can sort of maybe try to paraphrase this and say, well, if we have a renewed mind, then our lives are transformed. And so our very lives become the living proof that what God wants for us is good and better and far, far more than what we could have imagined. But then there's this word that kind of trips up some people. It's that word perfect. Now, depending on your personality, okay, if you're the artist, free spirit, words like perfect don't bother you. Perfect. Well, that, that's, they don't really mean perfect. Yeah. But there's another kind of personality, maybe say an accountant type or whatever, and, and, and you hear the word perfect and you're like, it's got to be to the penny. I've got to like like, what is God's will for every penny in my bank account? There is a perfect will, and I don't want to be two cents off, you know? I've got to know the But it may be helpful to you to know that this word perfect is actually related to the Greek word telos, which, which has to do with the, the desired end, the goal. And so when Paul says the, the perfect will of God, he's talking about the will that, that um, leads you to the place that God intended, it's a thing that reaches its desired, intended outcome. That's why, if you were to read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage, the message translation says something like maturity, that we might come to maturity. Because what Paul is saying is the goal here in discerning the will of God is not to get every penny right, but that we would grow up into maturity, that our very lives become mature. Now, when you think about this, it actually makes sense with the rest of what the Bible says about the will of God. Think for a moment. If you were to do a little search on what the New Testament says God's will for our lives is, there are a few places where it specifically spells it out. What is God's will for our lives? 1 Thessalonians 4 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's God's will? That you would be made clean and holy and pure, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Thessalonians goes on in chapter 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right away, we're beginning to get a different understanding of what it means to discern God's will. That maybe God's will is much more about the macro than it is the micro. Maybe God's will for our lives is more about the big picture than it is about the detail. Maybe, and we could, we could add a string of phrases here, maybe God's will is more about who you are becoming than it is about what you are doing. Maybe God's will for your life is actually about who you're becoming, not about the specific thing you're doing. What if God's will is more about your sanctification than your specific occupation? 
What if God's will for your life is more about your character than your career? Now think about this. Think about this. Wrestle with this for a moment. Because we, we spend so much time sweating the, these things. Oh, God, what are I want every penny of my life. I want every ounce of my time. I want it all allocated in the right place. And he's saying, I know. But discerning my will is about figuring out how to come to maturity. That really my will for your life is about your sanctification and about your giving thanks. It has much more to do with who you're becoming than what you're doing. Much more about your character than your career. Now, think about this from a parenting standpoint, okay? My wife and I have four kids, ages 10 down to three. By the way, are we working on getting the floods on, the floodlights on? Yeah. Sven, are we working on that? Because I, I, it's just a bit dim in here. I know we were doing that because of the slide on that, but I think we're okay with the slides. Um, thank you. Sorry for that. Um, when you think about this from a parenting standpoint, when you have little kids you're always going to give them very clear instructions, right? You're going to say, okay. I mean, think about the bedtime routine in our house. Okay, what do you have to do? You got to go potty. You got to put on your pull-up. You got to get on your PJs. And then you got to go tuck in bed. You got to brush your teeth. Then you got to get in bed. Sometimes we skip that. Um, but, you know, if it's, if it's been a long day. Um, so, <laughs> and you go through these routines and you spell out every step from, this is what I want you to do. This is what I need you to do. This is what you got to get up and do. But eventually your hope is that they just start doing it. Eventually, they kind of internalize it, and they get it. So our girls, 8 and 10, they're sitting in the service. They have their, we homeschool them, so they have their checklist. And on, on many, many mornings, to their credit, they get up, and they know what they're supposed to do first. Okay, I got to shower. I got to brush my teeth. I got to change. I got to make my bed. I got to empty the trash. I got to go downstairs, eat breakfast. Then it's practice piano, and then we start math and all, you know. But the idea is, on a good day, <laughs> that they're all, they've clicked through their checklist on their own. Why? Because they know that nobody wants, no parent wants to be hovering over their child every minute of the day. Say, okay, now do this. Okay, now do that. Okay, put on the shirt. I said, put on the shirt. Put on the shirt. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want to keep doing the, the idea is that kids will know. Now, on the flip side, if a child were to ask their parent every step of the way, hey, dad. The sun's up. Um, can I get up now? Yes, you may get up. Hey, Dad, should, should I brush my teeth? Is it morning? Yeah. Yes, you should brush your teeth. Okay, um, Dad, um, do you think I should eat breakfast first? Yes, eat breakfast. Dad, do you think I should? You're like, okay, you know what? I want to impart wisdom to you. <laughs> and wisdom means internalizing the good life so that you make these choices for yourself, right? And this is, this is the goal, even from parents, is we're not interested in micromanaging the details. We're interested in them developing the kind of character that it takes to choose righteousness, right? We're interested in forming their character and their vision of the good life in such a way that they will make these choices. Well, I wonder if that's a little bit like what God wants for us. That at the end of the day, it's not, uh, Lord, should I um, forgive this person? Yes. I mean, are you sure? I, I mean, Lord, should I? Yes. Okay. God, I, I just wonder if I should. And we want step-by-step hand-holding, and he's saying, I'm more interested in forming in you the kind of character that grows up into maturity so that you prove out how good 
and perfect and wonderful my plan for your life really is. Does that make sense? It takes us out of the realm of sweating. Every, what, what, what's this? What's this? What's this? And yet there is even that, even to say it takes maturity and God's goal for our life is maturity. That's great. But even that is about discernment. Because we've all been through situations where sometimes the right action is to invite this particular person in need over to your home. And sometimes that's not the right action. Just recently we were speaking to someone about that and they said, should we do this or should we not do this? And it's, there, it's not the kind of situation where it's like, well, let's turn to the handbook. Section 4. So I, no, it's not in there. And so you say, well, let's think about this. Is this the right thing for, for you and them in this season. There's discerning involved, isn't there? And that's the trick about this mature life. The, the, the mature life is not simply knowing what's black and white, right or wrong. The mature Christian life is about discerning what is wise versus what is foolish. And sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Sometimes I get it wrong. That's okay. But it still means that we're wrestling through this. So now, this is, this is the practical kind of part. What, how do we really discern what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives? Can I just say that I'm so thankful for the story in our Bibles about Elijah getting it wrong? <laughs> because here's this guy, right? Has this amazing thing where the fire, he calls down fire from heaven, it consumes this. He's like the hero of the day, epic prophet miracle. And then the next story is how he's running scared. And in his moment of depression and fear and anxiety and discouragement, God's trying to speak to him. And he sees an earthquake and he's like, God? Nope. And there's a rushing with God? Nope. And all of a sudden, the dramatic is not there, but it's this whisper that comes. And I love this, that story because it reminds us that the life of tuning in to God is a life of tuning into whispers is a life of discerning and saying, I'm not entirely sure, but I think this, and it's possible that I might be wrong here, but maybe this. Spiritual directors will know, and I'm looking here at Rick, uh, Rick Anderson uh, is a, a spiritual director, and they do this for many leaders and, and coach companies and organizations around the country, but one of the practices that has been brought back, if you will, into our days is something called the prayer of examine. And the prayer of examine was developed by a chap named Ignatius in the 1400s. Uh, and um, basically Ignatius said, look, it's good and fine for all you monks to seek God and pray in the monastery, but I'm a merchant. I'm more of a man of the marketplace. How can you seek God in the active life? And isn't that what we all want to know? It's like, hey, Glenn, look, I know I could be much more attentive to the whispers of God if I prayed 10 hours a day, but it ain't going to happen. I got a job. I got a family. I got a career. So, so what do we do? Well, Ignatius is your boy. So there's several, there's several pieces of the prayer of examine. We're not going to go into all of them. But at the heart of the prayer of examine is learning to pay attention to what he called a consolations and desolations. Learning to pay attention to the places where joy comes rushing in and the places where it goes leaking out. And so sometimes 
spiritual directors will say, some of the questions you ask yourself are things like, where did I give and receive love today? Where was I in the sweet spot, the right zone where I felt God's joy and I was able to give and receive love in a beautiful way? Like, oh, that is a gift. Those are the things we give thanks for. And desolations are kind of this other thing where we say, well, where did I fail today in some way, right? Where, where did I fall? Where did I fail to give and receive love? But also, where, what just took it out of me? Where's the agitation? Where's the troubled water in my heart today? And I think if we were to use that loosely as a guide, we could say two things. Number one, that God speaks to us through our joy. That God does speak to us through our joy. Sometimes we're so afraid of this because we're convinced that the Christian life is a sour life and that to be a Christian is to be bothered all the time, is to be Eeyore, you know, patron saint of the modern evangelical, Eeyore. I don't know. It's pretty bad out there. And I'm probably sitting on some thorns. But God speaks to us through our joy. And there are these moments where all of a sudden something comes rushing into our hearts and I think, I think God's confirming that, that this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm, this is what I'm supposed to, to do. I, I um, always think of that Chariots of Fire movie. You remember the scene? And Eric Little is debating this whole thing about whether or not to run and he just gives that phrase, and who knows whether he really said it or if the movie writers put it in, right? But when I run, I feel God's pleasure. What a beautiful phrase. Such an awareness of God's presence, though, isn't it? To say, Lord, help me to walk and discern your will today so that I can feel your joy. Nehemiah, Evan's doing the series on Ezra and Nehemiah in Sunday school this, you know, these, this month, and it's Nehemiah who says the joy of the Lord is our strength. How do we make it through life when we can sense and discern and be attentive to the joy of God rushing into our hearts? A couple years ago, um, several years ago now actually, four or five years ago, I was making the decision about whether or not to, to go back to seminary. I had a master's in management, and, but was feeling this awakening, this love again. I, I was a theology undergrad, and then I had a master's in management. And, but was kind of feeling this, oh, I just love reading theology again. Strange, I know. Stephen can relate back there. Yeah. But in the midst of that, it was like, I think there's something coming alive in me again that the Lord is trying to confirm or affirm. And so as Holly and I prayed about it, it was like, yeah, I, I think God is speaking to us through this joy that's arriving in the midst of this. I, and so then you, you, know, you work out all the practical stuff about time and cost and all of that, and you say, yeah, I'm supposed to do that. And then even the next step, go, going into the doctorate, the people ask me all the time, why are you doing this? You know, trying to mask their, <laughs> their, their opinion that I shouldn't be, right? You know, like, so tell me again why you're doing this, you know. You don't need it, right, for what you do. No, I don't, need, I don't need it. But when I study, I feel God's joy. And I feel the sense of preparing myself and all of this, this stuff. I want to say that when I say God speaks to us through our joy, I don't mean 
He's making your dreams come true. And it's worth saying because in our world of Oprah and sort of self-help religion, it's very easy to hear this phrase and think, oh, God wants me to be happy, so I should do all the things that make me happy, you know? No. No, that's not what I'm saying. There is a difference between the self-centered sort of happiness and the true joy that comes from self-giving love. And there are these moments where you say, God, this is hard. This is a difficult path. Parents will sometimes say this when they first have a child. They'll say, I never knew how hard it was going to be, but I never knew what this feeling of joy and love was going to be. And so they'll say, they'll say, they'll say look, I, I, it's not that it's easy. It's not that it makes me happy to get up three times in the night every two hours. And yet there's a deep abiding joy in the self-giving love that I know is the Lord smiling on me. Does that make sense? You kind of see the difference? But God also speaks to us through our trouble. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is why we can't be so quick to run away from pain. I think the problem of our age is we only assume that God speaks through joy and never through pain. And so we say, well, joy good, pain bad. God is in the good stuff. He's not in the bad stuff. When the truth is the, the spiritual practice of paying attention to both consolations and desolations is to say, God, you're trying to work in me in both. In both. So not only does he speak to us through our joy, but he speaks to us through our trouble. In fact, very often it's our trouble that is an invitation for us to look a little bit deeper. To say, well, what's really going on there? Why did that bother you so much? What is it that's happening there? Years ago when Pastor Brady first came and, and took over as a senior pastor here at New Life, this is 2007, it all seems so petty now, but at the time it was massive, you know. And he was introducing, or there was rumors that he was going to introduce a staff dress code. Rumors. It hadn't even happened. But the rumor was it was going to be no jeans, no denim, you know. So I, like every good crusader, took up to my inbox and decided to wage a war via emails. <laughs> Terribly immature. And uh, so there was like an all-staff email that said some big announcement was coming, and I thought, aha, I know what this is. And so I wrote back and said, well, I just want you to know, Colorado, we, you know, we, da, 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 da. and I started just giving this whole thing about how we're not Texas and all of that, and that <laughs> jeans are okay, and that a fleece is our sport coat, and <laughs> all of that sort of thing. And uh, needless to say, it didn't go very well. Um, and... Uh, and uh, I tell the story, one, because it, it, it is a, a vulnerable insight into my own immaturity, but I also tell it to show you how it became an invitation into maturity. Because when Brady talked to me, he said, okay, Glenn, we don't really know each other that well, and he's like, I, I'm, I'm not worried about the specifics of the dress code thing, but he's like, I, I'm more just wondering, where is this coming from in your heart? He's like, I've never seen that kind of agitation before. So what's... Where is this coming from? And it gave me the chance to really work through my own heart and to say, you know where it's coming from? I think it's coming from a place of woundedness, from a, a, a failure with a leader. I think it's coming from my own lack of ability to trust authority again. 
I think it's coming from my own kind of desire to stand on my own two feet. And all of a sudden, that trouble became an invitation to let Jesus heal that part of me and to lead me into maturity. So God speaks not just through our joy, but through our trouble, through the pain, through the, the darker emotions. This is a phrase spiritual directors use all the time. The, the darker emotions even can be an invitation to say, well, can Jesus, is Jesus with you only when you're going through the happy, happy, joy, joy times? Or is Jesus with you in the darker emotions too? No, no, he is. So it's okay to say those things. It's okay to say, Lord, I, I feel this and this and this and this and this, and I feel unloved and rejected and alone, and yes, 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 so long as those things are not ends in themselves. But they become a way to say, so Jesus, put your hand on this equivalent of a leper's hand of my heart. Put your hand on this unclean part of my life. Put your hand on it. Make it whole again. The beauty of all of this, the beauty of this kind of life, is that it reminds us that the gospel is not about getting it right. The gospel is about believing that God is with us. God is with us. Sometimes I think we sweat so much about discerning the perfect will of God for the micro decisions of my life because we're convinced that what God cares about at the core is that we get it right. And in our mind, the Christian gospel is about getting it right. Therefore, the more things I can get right, the more stickers I'll get in heaven. Instead of remembering that at the heart of the gospel is Jesus, and Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. The heart of the gospel is that God has said, I've come to walk with you. I've come to be your shepherd. I've come to guide you. Maybe what we want is a GPS. But what God wants is to be our guide. I'm not interested in giving you turn-by-turn -turn directions. I want to actually walk the trail with you. If you've ever gone on a hike with an experienced hiker, and that's usually the way I like to go on hikes, <laughs> when I go. I don't always go hiking, but when I do. <laughs> and I've, I think in those moments, I, I, we don't need the turn-by-turn -turn directions. What I need is someone who knows the terrain. What I need is someone who knows the curves of the road, where it gets rough. Hiking Pikes Peak 15 years ago. I did it with people who had done it before. People who said, okay, we're about to get past Timberline here. So you're gonna have, it's going to be harder to breathe. And I was like, harder than this? <laughs> you know, I said, yeah. Because you can, you can get turn-by-turn -turn directions, but man, a guide is better. And I think this is what God wants to be. The one who says, oh, I'm with you. I'm not going to tell you every step of the road. I'm not. I don't want you to have turn-by-turn -turn directions. I want you to have me. I want you to have me. And this is why when Jesus left and ascended and took the throne, what he says is, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And he will guide you into all truth. He'll bring these things to remembrance. It's the Spirit that will be your guide. We don't have Siri. We have the Spirit. 
Siri, what should I do? <laughs> you know? No, no, you have the Holy Spirit saying, I'm living in you. I'm working in you. I'm going to walk with you. Another metaphor, I was talking with a friend over lunch a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this, and I said, you know, I, I wonder if we keep thinking there's a script for our life. There's a script, right? Lord, what's the script? Because there's nothing worse than being in a play and not knowing your lines, right? So I've got to know the script. What's the script? And I, this, is, this is of Glenn, not necessarily of the Lord, so you can chew on this. What if it's not a script, but an improv? What if it isn't God saying, hey, there's a script, you've got to follow, and we're saying, oh, God, which, which is my life, which turn, this turn or this, and do I exit stage left or stage right? And God's saying, I, it's an improv, so I, I'm going to roll with you. In fact, it's not just an improv, it's an improv in which I will join you on the stage, and I'll talk you through every scene. Whatever you say, I'm so good at this, I'll turn this. Always keep turning the story back. Always keep turning the story back. What would that do to your process of tuning into God for guidance? If you thought about God as not having a script for every day, but an invitation to walk with Him, to say, I'm here. I'm going to join you on the stage. I'm going to roll with you. And there's boundaries, there's parameters. Again, there's macro will of God stuff. There's parameters here. Don't do this, don't do that. Stay, on, stay in bounds. As long as you stay in bounds, I'm going to roll with you. Let's keep going. What are we doing? What are we doing? When we seek God, we may not get the clarity we were asking for, but we will develop the character God is looking for. And we will find the companionship we are longing for. Leave that up for a minute and let's think about it. Let that sink in for a bit. When we seek God, we may not get the clarity we were asking for. God, why won't you just make it clear? But we will develop the character that God is actually most interested in. And more than that, we will find the very companionship that we're actually longing for. The very thing. You know, sometimes I think when we're asking God to speak, what we're really asking him to do is, God, would you eliminate all risk from my life? Right? God, if you would just tell me, I know this was true when, when we were in our college years and everybody was dating and everybody wanted to hear God's will about who they were going to marry. No, you just didn't want to risk a broken heart. But to love it all is to risk. So you will never, you will never be able to use God so that you don't need faith. You'll never be able to use God to eliminate the need for faith. You're always going to need to take the risk and trust Him. Sometimes I think we do the very opposite thing. We approach God not with faith, but because we don't want to have faith. I don't want to trust you. I don't want to walk blind. I don't want to walk by faith. I'm approaching you to speak, God, because what I want are guarantees and certainties and, and, and things that will not, that, that'll, that'll give me clarity and make it so that I'll never fail, that the business deal will go right. Nothing will go wrong. We'll never have a, a tough period. We'll never have a rough patch. I just want to make sure that you'll eliminate all the hard stuff. And God's saying that's, that's, that's the very opposite of the life of faith. The life of faith is 
not one that gives absolute clarity and certainty and guarantees away from hardship. The life of faith is an invitation to walk with Jesus by the Spirit. To say, God, I'm not totally sure where this is leading, but I'm with you and you're with me, and that's enough. That's the life of faith. So we may not get the clarity we're asking for, but we'll develop the character God is looking for and find the companionship we are really longing for. The thin conclusion of this sermon would be to say, okay, I got it, Glenn. Basically, um, do what feels happy. Don't do what feels bad. Nope, that's the opposite of what I just said. In fact, sometimes you'll be weighing out decisions and you'll say, well, actually, I think, um, I think this is the one I'm supposed to do, but it's not the one that seems easiest, seems sacrificial. On the other hand, some of you are like so prone to a martyr complex that God might be like, take the freaking job. Like, just take that one. That's me. Go ahead. Say yes to that one, you know. No, God, I want to suffer and trust you more. Take the job. I had a friend who was not particularly, um, he's not particularly uh, charismatic. He doesn't talk a lot about like, oh, God spoke to me, a vision. In fact, he very rarely talks like that. But he was weighing out two different job options. And he went for a run one day because for him, running is where it clears his head and allows him to kind of discern a little bit more closely. On his run, he said, I had this just impression in my heart. He's again very hesitant. He wouldn't say the Lord said. He's just very, I had this impression. And he said, I just felt like maybe God was saying, <laughs> there's pleasure and pain on both paths. But, but I too am on either one. You don't often hear that from God. But sometimes that's true, isn't it? God, which college, which job? And God said, look, man, there's going to be good stuff and bad stuff here and good stuff and bad stuff here, but I'm going to meet you in either one because neither of these options are out of bounds. Do you know what I'm saying? Neither of these options are out of bounds. So, so sometimes we say yes to, to door number one, and then we encounter hardship, and we're like, oh, no, I, should, I knew it. I should have said door number two. God's like, no, there was going to be hardship on either door. But don't we talk like that? You took this job, all of a sudden the clients dry up, and you're like, oh, I missed the will of God. As if God is like a genie. <laughs> Thank you, Josie. As if he's like a genie. He's not. Because he, you may say yes to this door, this path, and find hardship on it. But you know what else you're going to find? You're going to find Jesus there too. You're going to find Jesus there too. And that is the actual meaning of Philippians 4. Philippians 4 verse 11 says this. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, Paul says, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is not saying, I can do all things. I can have a year's worth of clients in two months in Jesus' name. Paul is not saying, I can do all things. I'll win this football game miraculously in the fourth quarter. 
Paul is saying, I'm with you, Jesus. And if it means the good stuff, I can do it. And if it means difficult deserts, I can do it. Because Jesus, I'm with you. And that's what this is about. Tuning in to God. What do you get? Clarity, guarantees, certainties? No, you know what you get when you tune in to God? You get God. You get God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. 